In this episode, Ken McCaskill, CFO at Sneak, talks about how to steer fast-paced software companies, the power of creating his own chaos, and why aspiring CFOs should lean into the business early in their career. Hi, I'm Ross, and this is the CFO Playbook. Each week, you'll get insights from world-class financial leaders to help you grow your company, yourself, and face the challenges required of today's CFO. Ken, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Hi, Ross. Glad to be here. So, Ken, you've had an incredible career, not to say that it's done by any means yet, but over the past 20 years, you've been in various high-growth software companies, venture-backed companies, and of course, many of them with like international influence. So can you describe a little bit of your experience for our listeners and, and what that journey has been like as you've gone from the, the dot-com era all the way up to the modern era? Sure. It has been 20 years, you're, you're right, and mostly in enterprise software. In fact, I was at Coopers and Librand in the 90s and I joined uh, the venture-backed businesses in the early 2000s and I've been enjoying it ever since and probably had five or six projects, I guess, in there that are sort of noteworthy and all been all been different for sure as my career has progressed. And I I think in the earlier days when I was sort of leaving the firm and taking on my first sort of VP finance and then ultimately CFO job, I was completely focused on closing the books, the technical aspects of accounting and really sort of grinding through the mechanics of the accounting and, and not really probably paying as much attention or as involved in the overall business. So that's kind of where I started out. And through the journey, and, and this is a point I think I would make to everybody, is sort of, it, it, it does become, and it becomes more enjoyable, but it becomes you know more valuable, I think, also is when you dig in and, and you start to get more involved with the business over, over time and learn the go-to-market side of it and the sales side of it and then the legal side of it. And growing through. So starting out at Watchfire very early in my venture-based world, sort of coming at it from an accounting perspective and now more at Sneak, coming at it from a more holistic business perspective and really focused on the go-to-market and the um, the operations of, of the business as a, as a first thing I do almost every, every day and every week and every month as I go through. Do you think that evolution in your responsibilities and your focus... Is that a reflection on how you've developed as a leader through that period? Or do you think it's also a reflection on the demands that are being placed on you as a CFO? I think more my evolution through the process and sort of the insight of working on my first project to the second one to the third one. And and each one of those sort of being a bit more involved on this, you know, on the progress of the or the success of the previous project and building in. And I think... I guess I'll answer that question. Just it's both, I think, because now that I think about it, Ross, I think it was an evolution. But as you do one project and you move into the next company, you have that expectation and and folks know what that other project was and you you get brought in at a progression through. So I, I think both the demands sort of increase and pull you along, but also you're you're learning and developing and and getting insights from every engagement that you're in. And, and when you reflect on those things, you bring a new, a new view. And I, again, I come back to, you know, and when I talk to CFOs or controllers, I mean, I think one of the things I try to say the most is 
you know, don't, don't make it about the accounting necessarily. Of course, you're responsible and, and the technical side of it needs to be done, but it needs to be about the business and it needs to be about growing the scale of the business and helping the business understand where the growth is, is coming from and making sure the investments and the engagement that you have with the broader team is, is around the business and less so necessarily about the, the debits and the credits per se. That lesson about, or like starting with accounting, but actually moving beyond that into almost a sense of ownership of the entire business. Was that something that you just developed or or became aware of gradually? Or was there a moment or two where you actually had a realization that said, okay, maybe my focus is on the wrong thing here? I think you kind of get brought into it. I think for me, I think I'm a creative person. I like to solve problems. I have a little bit of ADD, so I bounce around and I'm on one project and on the on on the next. So I think the solving of the problems through the career has brought me into different areas to sort of bring a financial view, but also just sort of find a way. And and I think that's important that things are not black and white. So and it's a risk as an as an accountant, as a lawyer, et cetera, that, you know, these are the rules, this is what GAP says, which is all true, but having a lens about what you're trying to do and how can you how can you get to where you need to go whilst playing within the boundaries is important. And you have to be thoughtful and you have to listen and and figure out exactly the solutions that you need. So I, I think to come back to the question about the evolution. You know, I think when I reflect on it, you know, I wish I had have been different in the in the very beginning because, you know, I don't necessarily think I was being successful on my first engagement because I was, I ended up doing things that, you know, I should have been trying to leverage the team. I should have been broadening out. I should have been adding resources. So as a result, you're looking to progress into a CFO role by, you know, doing the books better, stronger, better. And at the end of the day, you're not necessarily adding value to the executive team that you think you're you're adding because you're you're not sort of thinking about the business in that growth light, if that makes sense. It does, and it, and it's interesting that you mentioned that you're bouncing around or the the almost like having ADD because for me, I would imagine that there's been like the antithesis of the successful executive, the successful CFO, because I thought, especially for a CFO, that there's almost like this discipline and singular focus required because so much of it can be a detail-orientated role. Is that a fair reflection? And how does that fit with your your characteristics and your energy? It's an interesting comment because, you know, sometimes I say, I I don't know how I got to be a, you know, a chartered (laughs) accountant because, you know, I'm not the best at filing and labeling items. But I think in a venture-based world, it's fast-paced, it's problem-solving, it's being able to do many things at the same time. So I think it served me well, that sort of ability to, you know, I create my own chaos a little bit, but I work in a chaotic environment and it's, that's all served me well. But at the end of the day, you do need to make sure that you're making up for your weaknesses or your shortcomings and that those things are being looked after either through the applications that you choose to deploy or the way you build the the team and and how you balance the characteristics and the traits of everybody that you bring around, whether they're your GC or your controller or your your procurement lead or your FP&A lead. All of this needs to work together as a team. And so I think there the the item, Ross, is that you know, it's a fast-paced environment. So I, I think having a little bit of ADD and a bit like that is, is served me well, to be honest. So 
And I love the expression, uh, create my own chaos, because <laughs> it reminds me of like the, the phrase, never let a crisis go to waste. Because I think that in those moments, whether it's a crisis or chaos, or but there's some type of energy and there can often be huge spurts of productivity. So I was wondering, do you purposefully, when you're going in and, and taking on a new role or trying to build up a company, do you purposefully go in and try and create to a degree that sense of chaos in order to help transform things and move things along? Something I should mention, I've been over the 20 years, I've been on a number of projects, but working with a lot of the same people through one company to the next. So I think you need to create a sense of urgency. I mean, sometimes I call it a compete to win. It's it's not necessarily like that, though. It's more just, it's easy not to do something, I find. You know, days can be long. It's easy to cancel that one-on-one. It's easy to push off that that thing, but it doesn't move you forward. And I always feel better by sticking to the agenda, having those meetings, and you always find them rewarding at the end more so than than canceling them. So I think that fast paced question, I think number first off, I would credit the teams I've been working with almost more than myself. And I've been around for the the ride and and providing my own energy to that. But that's where that's where I think I thrive the the most. And right from the beginning it's been the case. I've just channeled that energy sort of more in a balanced way, again, at the beginning of my career, more on the accounting, more get the credit facility done, focus on the reporting, focus on the end of the month, focus on the GL and these sorts of things. And I think now at a typical week, I spend more time with the sales team, figuring out the sales calls and figuring out the sales targets, supporting on the the legal deals, getting involved in my LinkedIn context to help close deals, thinking about all of the investors and what's motivating the investors and figuring out capital and planning in three years and six months and building the team. And I think, you know, it's not a hard transition, but I think it's a transition that everybody's going to go through as they leave the firm to their first and, and if I could say one more thing here, I find it's an interesting, I, I think about this a lot when, when I was doing audits at back in Cooper's and in the nineties, I would leave all those audits and think I, I, I could be the CFO of, of this business. I know more about this business than the, than the CFO does today. But as I reflect on that, I might've known more about the exact technical accounting, but I did not know more about the business and everything else. And it was kind of an awakening as I, transition to sort of say, yeah, I know all this technical accounting, but I, you know, I don't know how to deal with the bank account and I don't know how to deal with the investor and I don't know how to do this and that. And, and those things, I would just encourage everybody as they make these transitions and grow through their careers to be patient, but ultimately to be focused on the business and, you know, where the business is going and to learn the business, including the problem and and how to position what you're doing. And, And again, it's only been later in my career that I've really kind of done those things. And I, I think it's unlocked a, a lot of, it's, it's enabled me to contribute more, I think, uh, time, the more I know about the business. So given how powerful a lesson this is for you, is this something that you then try to engender in your teams and then try and create the opportunity for them to perhaps learn that lesson earlier than you did? Yeah. And I think this is a difficult one. We spend a lot of time with our people team, sort of figuring out how to develop high potential people and team members within the company. And, you know, from an accounting team, it's a little bit difficult because you have one controller, you have one and, and sort of where people are going to go. But I do spend a lot of time sort of trying to instill the practical problem solving. Everything is not black and white. 
it's not our job to slow things down. We need to be enabling the business and supporting the business with, with data, et cetera. But, you know, I think incrementally to that, when I think about people's development and career, I am absolutely focused on that. And, and sometimes it's about graduating from our current business to a broader role or a new role at a new, a new business. And that's, that's absolutely fine. And sometimes people will get into one job and they're, and this has happened to me a number of times. Lots of people have told me, you're never going to be a CFO again. You're going to be this, you're going to be that, you're going to be the other thing. And, and I thank all of those people that have helped me sort of, sort of navigate to where I, where I am. But I, I, I think as, as the CFO of the company, I do spend a lot of time thinking, you know, this person can go here, can go here and can do this and it's growth. And some of those conversations are hard. Some of those conversations take time, but we do spend a, a lot of time developing. And I do a little bit outside of the company, but admittedly right now with where I am at, at Sneak, the, um, the business is growing really fast, so it's occupying a lot of my time. So most of the most of what I'm doing is internal at Sneak right now. I can imagine in most hyper growth companies, uh, especially at the moment, it would take up a lot of your time going through the various rounds, trying to cope with that level of growth, and then presumably also scale up the finance team to be able to enable that growth. I think that's a good discussion point. So with the growth, I think one of our biggest discussion points or something we spend a lot of time thinking and talking about is, you know, how do we make sure we're not underfunding the growth? So, you know, when you think about, you know, a typical CFO thinking about efficiencies and scale, and we've had the benefit of raising, you know, reasonable capital and have good cash flow and good runway of cash. So we've been able to invest and it's been a real challenge, sort of the traditional sort of look for leverage, look for leverage in the PL early and sort of trying to understand, well, wait a sec, there's a lot of growth happening here. How do I make sure that we don't underfund the growth? And that's been a real sort of balance on this journey that we've been on. And, and it's something that I, I think I would point out that, you know, it, it is something to be on the lookout for in terms of your how you're feeling about the business as I look at it or as people look at their own businesses, which is, where is this business going? How do I think bigger? If I have the resources to do, when and how do I invest and how do I make sure that I'm getting out far enough so that I'm not slowing the business down? And a lot of that takes, you know, just looking at the growth of the business. So right now, I would say our, our focus at Sneak has been making sure we're not underfunding the growth. And, and I've had a number of conversations with CFOs that have sort of been in similar situations. And it's the thing that they tell me too, which is just make sure you're not overly focused on leverage and necessarily, you know, down to the productivity numbers when your top line numbers and your growth is what it is. So if those metrics are good and you have the cash flow, make sure you're investing far enough ahead. And that's a real difficult balance to think about. So we spend a lot of a lot of time looking at our, you know, our one year and our three year models and and in a software business, headcount is, you know, 75% of your expenses and you're trying to figure out, are you solving your problems the right way with people? Are we looking for productivity gains at the right time? When's the right time to look for them? Is every department the same for where that leverage will come from? And, and I think the one thing I, I've come to land on, and if it's helpful to others, is just to kind of think about it in the context of the destination, where you think you're going to be 
And if these items that you need to invest in are are in the destination, are in your run rate at that destination, wherever that may be, and if you have the cash flow, we tend to think that investing in, in front of that, reasonably in front of that, is the way to go. So, that, but it's been it's been a lot of reflection on you know how how do you make sure you're not underfunding the growth. And what are the signs that you look for that you might be underfunding the growth? Basically, who's yelling the most, probably, <laughs> in terms of I need more, I need more, I need more. We do look at capacity, and there's a lot of it is on the go-to-market side. We we look at sort of, you know, our segmentation in terms of the SMB versus the commercial versus the enterprise and where the business is coming at us and where the capacity is and how fast our, our reps ramping from a quota carrying capacity and also from a, just a velocity from a no-touch perspective and trying to really bring in this product-led growth element. And so th- there is these elements of focusing on unit economics where you where you look at high volume, but a smaller percent of your overall. And, and then you look at the unit economics at your at the higher higher end. But I think Ross, overall, we spend a lot of time looking at making sure that whatever our, our revenue targets are, we kind of want to be six months out in front of, of that. So right now I'm working on uh, with the team to make sure that we have enough capacity based on all of our modeling to hit our first half 22 numbers. So that's about how far we're out, about nine nine months. And it gives us enough time to react as well, because if the growth is plus or minus where we are, we can grow into it at a certain velocity, or we can add into it and still have it ramped if we're out in front. So we spend a lot of, a lot of time looking at, at capacity in, in, in terms of that, yeah. Presumably, I guess that's why you spend so much time with the sales teams, because then you can you can get a sense of the, I guess, the qualitative aspects of what's going on beyond the capacity and the quantitative elements of it. That's right. And I, again, I would encourage, you know, as folks build their teams through the seed and A and B rounds, and as the revenue grows to sort of really develop a sales ops or a field finance function with a very deliberate sort of 13 week or weekly and a quarter sort of forecasting cadence. And and we spend a lot of time looking at data between what the reps are calling, what the managers are calling, what our financial targets. And we save that quarter over quarter. So we kind of know a lot of metricing around linearity, et cetera, not, not to go too deep into those things, but I, I think it's one thing that would be a great investment and, and for a CFO to bring to the equation to the extent the company hasn't done it before, the team around hasn't done that before, is to bring this sort of this sales ops and data tracking around the, the calls week to week. There's 13 weeks within the quarter and you how you use those 13 weeks to understand your pipeline and your call and your pipeline generation and the linearity of the business will enable you to understand where you need those investments, probably first and foremost, but secondly, how to forecast the business and how you feel about those numbers that the board is asking you for, that the management team is asking you for, and the investors are asking you for as you put down your plan. So that's an area, again, if you go back to the evolution of my own self, I wouldn't have known much about that coming from, you know, the public accounting firm and in and focused on the accounting. But as you get closer to the sales teams and as you get closer to the business, you sort of understand, you start to sort of see and get pulled into these areas. And I think those are areas that I would recommend any 
control or VP finance CFO to lean into as opposed to shy away from. And you touch on on a point there actually, which is that you've been in enterprise software since the early 2000s. You've you've seen lots of different waves come and go. And during that period, and presumably the first part of your career uh, when you were CFO in, in those software companies, SaaS really didn't even exist as a major term. And now, of course, it's a dominant term within enterprise software. How have you seen SaaS and enterprise software evolve, say, even over the last 10 years? So I've definitely seen it evolve. And actually, as a CFO, it's a, I think it's an easier place to be now than what it was in a perpetual license world. My experience has all been software, so I'm sure there's perpetual elements and hardware elements in, in some people's businesses that I'm less familiar with. But from a, a SaaS perspective, yeah, it's definitely evolved from a from a perpetual license to a time-based license to to full-on delivering from a production environment and truly being SaaS. And I, I think sometimes some subscription businesses get lumped in and get thought of as, as SaaS, but ultimately it's you know, owning and having that production and environment and, and delivering the product through constant iteration daily. But I think I really like the model very much so. And I think it's been adopted widely. I think folks like to buy software under subscription. I find typically the larger enterprises like to buy it in two or three years and smaller ones like to buy it in, in one, but it's given us a whole host of metrics to pay attention to. And, and those metrics have been very very helpful to understand the business when it comes to sort of understanding your truly your customer acquisition costs against the return and the the churn rates and and your net revenue retention all of all of these are kind of saas terms that folks use to highlight the trajectory of their business and they're very very helpful so i've been in, enjoying the transition to saas the transition itself is hard. I, I I know earlier on we were transitioning from a power and be, having a foot in both worlds is difficult. Having an on-prem version and a cloud version is difficult, but yet in a lot of ways, still you can't avoid it, right? If you're talking about doing business in certain jurisdictions and certain verticals, FedGov, banking, others, there's still a demand for some on-prem elements, which are make it difficult to get to 100% SaaS, although you you would aspire for that. You would want that overall. But anyway, Ross, I think the transition to a SaaS has been been great for startups, great for, in my instance, cash flow, because our model is to bill all of our, our contracts annually in advance, which has been great. That's not everybody's business. Some businesses are monthly, which are equally fine, but it's been a good model for cash flow and it's been a great model for predictability over a perpetual lumpy sales process in the past but but certainly having a foot in both worlds which most people would is a very difficult place to be i'm sure you mentioned a lot of the metrics and you alluded to the different business models as well there's so many pioneers in in SaaS, and like one thing that we do at soldo and i did prior at dropbox is you were always looking at peers and are there particular SaaS companies, peers of yours that you look to for inspiration and, and to learn from? The banks and the analysts and the venture community at large does a really great job of surveying companies, packaging that up and providing analytics. So it's a, it's a way to get those analytics to smaller companies that may not have the resources or the business to generate their own. We'd look at it more from a, a peer group who has a similar business model to us. What was their trajectory? 
sort of understanding if we're on the right path. And we, we kind of like to look at those top tier companies. Partially, it's competitive a little bit that we want to be, especially when you talk to the, the you know, the how fast can you get to 100 million or whatever number you want to pick and you want to be, you know, these are the top decile companies. So we spend some time looking at those. It's very exciting internally to share those metrics with the broader team at large to to sort of motivate and be excited about the path that you're on and these are the companies and these are the great brand names that came before you and you're on similar tracks. They're very motivating from that perspective, but they're also very informative to sort of understand. And, you know, you can have 10 or 15 pages of these things probably at the end of the day. And I think the trick is to, is to focus on the, the ones and they're, they're not going to be the same forever, but at the, those particular points in times, the focus on the ones that are most meaningful. And I, I certainly think your your revenue growth is is always going to be important from a SaaS perspective. Your your net revenue retention uh, or your NRR and your your churn and dollar retention numbers are going to be probably some of the most significant. And then and then you do look at your customer acquisition costs or your CAC from a, you know, just to sort of understand your sales efficiency. And there's, there's been lots of great studies done out there and we're never looking at those necessarily to re-engineer them, but just to gain insights from them. And I think another just thought on that is just apply it to your own business, right? So not every business is the same as the other. So just because somebody wants to look at a burn multiple or somebody's looking at these things, they may at your particular stage and phase of your business, it may or may not be the most important thing for you. So I think having a lens and a context on all of these around where am I? Am I a seed business? Am I pre-revenue? Am I you know, where am I in my cycle and trying to find the metrics that are going to be the most helpful for you at that particular part of your your journey. And, and that's kind of why I say they will change. And, and if I could, just one last point on this is not all your metrics. I mean, if you're like us, you have several good metrics, really great metrics, you have other ones, and then you have some that are like, hmm, that one's not perfect and you'll dig into it. And in a lot of cases, that one that's not so perfect, it's probably, it may be a really super relevant one, but half the time it's it's not perfect. It's maybe not the most relevant one and you have mitigating signals that sort of shine the light. And so spending time on finding, if you're in an SMB, you may have a high churn, for example, because the businesses over there, they churn themselves. But you might have really great cohorts and high NRR from the ones that do succeed. So sort of understanding and not getting distracted unnecessarily or letting somebody probe and deep too far into why is your churn so high? Of course, you want to follow that and follow it. But sometimes the answer is to highlight your segmentation and your your other metrics over here as the counterbalance of those things. So having a balance to all of these, I think, is is important and not allowing your yourself unnecessarily to get dragged down into one particular signal in one particular area. But the, I'd imagine like on the last part though, when you're trying to achieve that balance, it's far easier when you're managing that conversation internally. If you're speaking to investors or prospective new investors, then that's more challenging because there's pressure for them to dig into things and, and there's a natural pull towards where the uncertainty lies. So I'd imagine that's, that's a tricky thing to get right. 
100%. And it's exactly kind of what I'm commenting on. I mean, initially, when you're early in the journey, your seed or A rounds, those investors are probably going to be your board members. And they're going to be asking you these questions on your quarterly board meeting. And, and you're going to go through them and they're valuable questions. And then later, it'll be external people that aren't as close to the business that are asking those questions. And Again, just to sort of flash back to the beginning of the conversation, I, I think the more time you spend on these things yourself internally and understand the puts and takes between all of these, just in all of these conversations, it'll help you get out in front of them so that you're better able to describe your own business model and the way your business works and hopefully communicate that appropriately so that though that investor or analyst or whoever it may be sort of understands, okay, that's not the most meaningful thing in your particular business. And this is, the, so again, that's the benefit of having spent a lot of time internally on your FP&A work, on your models and really understanding the business by, and I, again, I would encourage by segment and by geo and not just as a as a lump, because sometimes, again, the explanations for these things are different by segment and by geo, and you might choose different metrics to highlight that tell the story the best way by breaking that down. Ken, I've got two more questions for you. The first one connected to your evolution as a CFO over the, the past 20 or so years through various tech companies and, and venture-backed scale-ups. For those listeners of ours that are earlier in their career, perhaps they're aspiring CFOs, what advice would you have for them? My advice is, again, I come back to this point, just focus on the business and understand the business and learn the business, num number one. And number two, Build your relationships outside of the outside, you know, with the executive team, with the investors and beyond as broad as you can get them and get involved in the business wherever it, it might make sense. Like, so again, I, I think what I would say is lean into areas. Finance needs to be involved. CFOs, VP finance need to be involved in all aspects of the business, not just the accounting. So, you know, I would prioritize those efforts to make sure you're expanding yourself as from a position of knowing about the business and, and moving yourself into those discussions as soon as you possibly possibly can. But every every job you take, every new project you engage in, I would say, you know, firstly, don't don't be in a rush to do anything. Learn the business, learn the people, learn the stakeholders. And um and I think it's really important to to try to understand where everybody's coming from, uh, especially the outside folks to sort of understand what role everybody's playing and then to insert yourself at the appropriate places throughout that broader spectrum of relationships. I think that's a very sage advice. And then lastly, uh, I can't help but ask, uh, I've read that you're a very active roadrunner. Uh, I, I too love to run. So I've been counting down the days till I can choose a, a race to go and run in, you know, once things start to open up again. Is there a particular race uh, that you would like to do or are you, are you more of a recreational runner? I'm definitely a recreational runner, although 
having the events was always the motivation to do the work and to get exactly. out there. Sometimes it's too easy to not go out if there's nothing there that you need to be ready for. So over the years, it's always been signing up for the event to sort of make sure you do the work. Uh, in COVID now, there's been no physical events to go to. But Ross, I would tell you one thing. I live in o Ottawa and the race here is in May each year. And invariably, you'll train through the winter. We have snow and it's cold and, and it's wonderful, in fact. And then the day of the race will be you know, our first 30 degrees Celsius uh, day. So a bunch of years ago, my wife and I said, we, we can never do the Ottawa race again. And we, we gravitated to areas where we can almost have the guarantee of, um, like we say, we will take 10 degrees, hills, rain, wind. We'll take hills, wind, and rain for a guarantee of 10 degrees C or, or less. Ken, thank you uh, so much for your time, for joining us today. For our listeners that wanted to go and connect with you online, where's the best place for them to do that? Probably on, on LinkedIn. I have a, a small social presence. Uh, one, one of those is LinkedIn. So you can find me at, at Kenneth McCaskill and happy to see anybody there that wants to connect for sure. Ken, thank you so much. Thanks, Russ. Great speaking with you today. One last thing. If you have a question you'd love to ask a guest, visit cfoplaybook.fm and submit your question there. This show is brought to you by Soldo the brighter way to manage business spending and expenses. With Soldo, you can control every expense, track spend in real time, automate financial reporting, and then use those insights to fuel growth. Learn more at soldo.com.